Welcome to Political Perspectives. My name is John Schock. On Tuesday, January 17th, five Beaverton congregations came together to host a program on race and racism. It was called The Dream Under Siege, a community forum on racism. About 60 were in attendance on a night in which much of the Portland area was crippled by freezing rain. The five congregations who came together to host this forum are Murray Hills Christian Church, Christ United Methodist Church, Spirit of Grace, Cedar Hills United Church of Christ, and Southminster Presbyterian Church. The event took place in the sanctuary of Southminster Presbyterian in Beaverton. The event was organized in order to create an opportunity for suburban residents to interact with leading activists in Portland to talk about critical issues facing the Portland Metro in regards to diversity, race, privilege, housing, policing, gentrification, and economic justice. The panelists were selected because of their commitment to and track record on social change. What you're about to hear are presentations by Joanne Hardesty and Ibrahim Mubarak. Before they speak, the three clergy who were present, myself, Larry Snow, and Brett Strobel, stated why this was important for each of us to host this event for our congregations and for the community. I'm the minister at Southminster Presbyterian, and I spoke first. Uh, the reason for me it's important is so I can see better. Um, I'm uh, probably privileged in most every category you can think of, white, male, heterosexual, Christian, um, middle income, I don't know, we can keep going through that, able-bodied, all of these kinds of things. And what that does is that limits my vision. Um, so I don't see what reality is from people who experience life from a number of a variety of perspectives. And so uh, we all want to dismantle racism, but the problem for me being white is that I don't often see it very well. And so I have to be educated about it and to learn about it. And so that's the aspect here. So um, that's what this is. This is an opportunity to uh, learn about the variety of the human experience. And so we can actually fully experience the, the, the beauty of what it is when we work together and get together and dismantle all the obstacles that separate us. This is Larry Snow, pastor at Murray Hills, Christian Church. Had an amazing conversation this past week with one of our longtime members uh, who insisted to me that uh, racism in America was uh, a thing of the past, that it had been completely taken care of, and that there was no reason to have this program tonight. So that's why it's important for me to be here. <laughs> and Brett Strobel of Christ United Methodist Church. Brett also moderated the event. Well, good evening and welcome. The uh, past presidential election exposed how deeply divided our nation is. And the rifts have been along the fault lines of diversity, race, xenophobia, privilege, housing, policing, gentrification, economic justice, just a whole list of things. And so we're here to talk about some of the critical issues facing us here in the Portland area. And as uh, uh, John had said, I'm very aware that I am a white, middle-aged male, and I'm a beneficiary of white privilege. I almost feel like I have to say, hi, my name is Brett. <clears throat> well, as such, I have a, an acute myopia when it comes to white privilege and racism. I want to know what it is I should know. 
and what I can do to be on the side of justice. The format for tonight, the speakers will have 20 minutes uh, each to present, and then we'll have the five-minute break, and then we'll gather together again for um, 40, 45 minutes to go over um, the questions and engage in some, I hope, will be very fruitful and insightful dialogue. Our speakers tonight, the Honorable Joanne Hardesty is president of the Portland chapter of the NAACP. She is a community organizer and activist who advocates for those on the downside of power. She campaigns for police accountability and racial and economic justice. And also, um, uh, John had mentioned the uh, radio program she has on uh, KBU. Our other speaker is Ibrahim Mubarak, and he's an advocate for the rights of unhoused people and has been involved in the homeless community here in Portland, Oregon for over 15 years. Ibrahim is co-founder of Dignity Village, Right to Survive, and Right to Dream Too. Let's give our speakers a hand. <clears throat> In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech, I Have a Dream, where he said, now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. He then talked about the destiny of all races being inextricably bound with each other. It's 53 years later, and we're finding that the dream is under siege. Who would like to go first? All right. Uh, I am, in fact, Joanne Hardesty, and I am, in fact, the president of the NAACP Portland branch. First, I want to applaud the fact that you're in the audience. The fact that you thought a conversation about race was important enough for you to leave your house this evening where it was warm, where it wasn't raining, and where you could have just avoided engaging in this conversation. So first, I want to appreciate that. And this is hard for Americans to talk about, right? Because over the years, we have gone out of our way to not talk about race and racism and how it plays out in our day-to-day -day life. In fact, I remember when I was a teenager, a 20-something, we used to talk about America as a tar salad, as if people came here, they intermingled, we put some salad dressing on them, and all of a sudden they all became this one tar salad. Then we talked about America as this melting pot, as if we all, once we got here, after a decade or so, we just melted into one people. But the reality is American is experienced differently based on your race, based on your gender, based on your ethnicity, based on your religion. And if you didn't think that was so, living through the last presidential election may have burst that illusion that we somehow were one. And so let's talk about what the election brought up. Because for me, and for most communities of color, 
Nothing new showed up this election cycle. We weren't surprised by the hatred. We weren't surprised at the otherness because that's been our lived experience as long as we've been part of the United States of America. But I think what this election did for us is expose that we haven't dealt with race or racism and how it impacts our day-to-day -day life. I'll give you a great example. During this election cycle, we've heard all kind of horrific pronouncements about the incoming administration. We've heard about creating registers so that people who have a religion that's Muslim would have to register. Kind of reminds you of Nazi Germany, if you know our history. When you hear someone seeking the highest office in the land, talking about on day one, sending millions of people to some other country because they're not entitled to be here. You've got to know that that's a problem. Now, there are those who thought once we elected Barack Hussein Obama to the presidency that we were done. Racism had disappeared. We had a black man in the highest position in the land. So how could we be a racist society? Do you remember what happened right after President Barack Hussein Obama got elected? I'll give you two words. Can you say Tea Party? Can you say armed white men showing up at town hall meetings so that their voice would be the narrative that would carry the day? I knew we were in trouble when the Malheur occupiers were found not guilty. That was the day that I knew it was possible for Donald Trump to become president of the United States of America. That was the day I knew. Because if you can have people who don't live in the state show up in your state with rifles and prevent people from going to school, going to work, going about their day-to-day -day activities, and you can make them fearful that they won't even walk the streets of their own neighborhood, that was the day I knew. Prior to that, I was like, no, we're not that crazy. No, there's no way we would do that, no way. But that day I knew that the scab has been broken off and the reality of who we are as a people has been exposed. And so, but believe it or not, I am hopeful. I am optimistic. I am excited about the possibility that 2017 brings. And you may think, maybe she's gone off the deep end. <laughs> maybe she's not paying attention. But let me explain why I'm excited. 
Because in this space that's been created since Election Day, all kind of people of goodwill have said, oh, heck no, not in my community. Oh, no, 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 no. I got to do something. I got to join some organization. I got to be part of something bigger than myself. I know for me, with the NAACP, people are calling me daily, sending me emails, signing up online, and you can too, to become a member of the NAACP because they understand that this is about us collectively as a people. And what we know is no one man defines who we are. And so the question becomes, after the 21st, the administration changes hands. We have people who have told us who they are. And Maya Angelou, one of my favorite poets on the planet, said when people tell you who they are, believe them. And I do believe them. But what I believe is there's many more people of goodwill. There's many more people who will not be silent. I think that is our biggest challenge. So it's not enough today to just be supportive of equality. It's not enough to just say, I treat everybody the same. That's not enough. That may have been fine in the Obama era. That's not going to be enough in the Trump era. What the Trump era requires is people of goodwill to be loud, to be vocal, to be articulate in places where people of color, Muslims, immigrants aren't, to go into those white places and challenge that narrative that somehow we don't all belong in the United States of America. Our children are watching us. Our children went through this election cycle thinking adults are out of their mind. It is our job now to show them what we stand for. It is our job to let them know what is real and what is a spin to demonize, to separate, to exclude, to treat people differently because of nothing that they have anything to do with, right? None of us gets to choose the body we're born in. None of us gets to choose the family we're born into. But at some point, as adults, we get to choose how we live in the world. We get to choose what we stand for, what we will accept. And we get to choose to live our values, to make sure that, for me, it's not about demonizing people who think differently than me. It's about figuring out what do we have in common? Because 90% of the time, we've got a much more in common than we have different. My outside might look different than you, but I bleed red, right? I need a warm place at night. I want to be loved and respected by the people that I love and respect. At the end of the day, we have much more in common. So it's up to us to make sure 
that we don't allow the public narrative to divide us, to separate us, based on things that really are insignificant. My color is totally insignificant to the person I am. But rest assured, my color influences how I see the world, how I move in the world, and what people see when I walk into the room. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a room and people, before I got there, thought they knew who I was, thought they knew what I would say, thought what my goal was, was to embarrass, to minimize, to be disrespectful of people that didn't look like me. And I hope, at least 99% of the time, I walk out of the room and they go, wow, that wasn't what I expected at all. When we talk about the beloved community, I think we've become very comfortable in thinking about it in a very philosophical way. I think, especially if you live in the Pacific Northwest, we are taught to be polite to the extreme. Which means we aren't honest with each other, right? We do the superficial. We don't have the real conversation. Real conversation about race makes people uncomfortable, and it should. Because guess what? Race has been uncomfortable since America started. And of course, if you're in Oregon, you know Oregon wasn't created for black folks or brown folks or native folks. And in fact, we passed laws to make sure that black folks and native folks and Asian folks couldn't live here. We could, our labor was needed, but we made sure, we put it in the Constitution. We were the only state allowed in the Union with their slaves. So that's the legacy under which we work in Oregon. But if you don't know that, if you don't know the history, if you don't know that by public policy, every 20 years, the African-American community is displaced, removed, relocated, just a matter of public policy. It's not personal. But only if it's your family who's been forced out of their home. Only if your family doesn't have a community to call their own anymore. Only if it's your family that's all of a sudden dispersed. I'm hopeful. I really am. I sound depressed, I know. Right? I sound depressed because I know too much. Right? But I'm hopeful because I also know what's possible. I also know what happens when people of goodwill join together. I know what happens when you build a multiracial, a multicultural, a multigenerational movement. I am so pleased to be president of an organization that is 103 years old. And so on my worst days, I think, man, what must it have been like can you imagine this conversation 103 years ago? There were some white people and some black people got together and said, you know what we need in Oregon? We need an NAACP. 103 years ago. 
And so on my worst days, on the days that I'm like, why am I doing this volunteer job that takes 80 hours a week, that has absolutely no appreciation at all associated with it, why am I doing this? I think about the people that came 103 years ago and the bravery and the courage and the commitment and the dedication that they had to have. Because I got to say, 103 years ago in Oregon, I don't know that I'd have been at that table going, oh yeah, what we need is a civil rights organization, right? But there were people that were visionary at that time who believed it was possible. And do you know we are the oldest continuously operating NAACP branch west of the Mississippi? Yes. So clearly what that means is that there were people of goodwill here for a long, long time. And they were able to put their differences aside and work towards a common good. And so I have some insight that I think will inform the next few years. I think one, and you heard it here first, I actually don't believe that our president-elect will make it through one term. Yeah. Heard it here first, right? He's either gonna quit, because he didn't get his way, or he's gonna start so many wars that Congress is gonna force him out. But whatever the case may be, what we know, what we can control, is what happens in Oregon. And so a couple of things have already happened. I know I live in the city of Portland, and we have a new mayor who is really clear about drawing a line in the sand. If it means we lose federal funding, so be it. But if there's a Muslim register, most of the Oregonians I know will be signing up. So by the time they figure out out of the 600,000 people who've signed up as Muslims, by the time they figure out who the Muslims are and who the Muslims aren't, we will have their database so messed up <laughs> that it will be a wonderful, wonderful sight. Right? That's what a beloved community would do. And so I want to invite you, if you hear of a Muslim registry, regardless of your religion, Sign up, because they can't take all of us, right? That's the reality, they can't take us all. And so that is something that we as a community can do. I've also said, when they do the immigrant and refugee sign up, I'm gonna sign up, I'm gonna be the first in line. Can't wait to see where they send me, <laughs> right? But that's a community that says, oh no, we're either all in this together, or we will all perish together. And so, the sitting by the sideline and silently cheering us on, that's so yesterday. What we need today is for you to be loud, for you to be visible, for you to be nonviolent, but for you to make sure that in any room that you have influence in, you bring these issues into that room. Because they can't keep us all out. 
And if we have our white brothers and sisters with our Muslim brothers and sisters and our Black Lives Matters brothers and sisters and we're all saying the exact same thing, we are community, we're in this together, and I am my brother's keeper. That's what it's gonna take for us as a community, quite frankly, to get through these next few years. Now, I gotta tell you, in my opinion, it was gonna be rough no matter who won the election, right? Because I think one thing people don't realize is that for people of color, it is less significant who wins. And I will make my case for you. In uh, how many minutes, five minutes I have left? Yeah. About five? Good, I'm doing good then. So let me make my case. We live in a state where the graduation rate for young people of color is horrendous. Any state that would applaud a 52% graduation rate on time is, a, is not a state that you would wanna emulate. But then if you break it down by race, the numbers become more horrific. If you look at Native Americans, their graduation rate on time is in the 30s. You look at Latino population, their graduation rate on time is in the low 40s. Look at African American population, their graduation rate on time is in the high 40s. Something is wrong when that's the norm. And remember, we live in a progressive state. Isn't that what they told you when you moved here, right? We're in a progressive state. How is that possible in a state that's progressive? That should be unacceptable in a state that's not progressive. But if you're progressive, you would think something's wrong with that. You look at our prison population and the over-incarceration of people of color. Now, it might be easy to sit back and say, well, you know, those people just commit more crimes. But if you look at the data, and I'm a data-driven kind of woman, the data says no. Every race commits crimes in the same percentage. The difference is, who does the police target? Who do the police go after? Um, I don't know, do the police show up? The gang enforcement unit show up in Beaverton after a football game? Well, they do at Jefferson High School. Doesn't matter who they're playing. But at the end of the game, there are like 25 gang enforcement officers that just happen to show up. So that's the state we live in. And I think we have to work to make people in Oregon a lot less comfortable. Because change doesn't happen when you're comfortable. Change happens in that uncomfortable space. Change happens when you have to question the status quo. You have to question what people have been telling you, right? What the media spin tells you about who people are. That's where change happens. Right? So we could comfortably just assume the powers that be know what they're doing, but they don't. And people of color have known this for quite some time. And so, I'm gonna stop talking because I know my brother Ibram, and let me tell you about Ibram. I've known 
Oh, no, no. I'm going to come. I'm going to come because Ibram and I both could talk for the entire time. But I've known Ibram since he envisioned Dignity Village. And I had the privilege. I was working at Multnomah County when he was, when he came to the city of Portland to Eric Sten, who was the city commissioner at that time, and said, houseless people can police themselves. What we just need is a little, just a tiny bit of government support that supports houseless people making decisions for their own lives. And I've had the privilege, that was like, Oh, about 14, 15 years ago, I've had the privilege of watching this man just break all kind of barriers and actually addressing issues of houseless folks. So it is my pleasure and honor. I don't think we've ever been on a panel together before. Uh, we do a lot of work together, but we've never shared a panel. And so it is my pleasure to be on the panel with him. I thank you very much for listening intently. I thank you again for just being brave enough to decide this is where you want it to be tonight because I know you had a lot of choices. So thank you for listening. I look forward to the dialogue, the back and forth dialogue after my brother is done. Thank you very much. This is Political Perspectives on KBOO. I'm John Schock. You're listening to The Dream Under Siege, a community forum on racism that was held Tuesday, January 17th at Southminster Presbyterian in Beaverton. Five congregations pulled together to host this forum. Southminster, Murray Hills Christian Church, Christ United Methodist Church, Spirit of Grace, and Cedar Hills United Church of Christ. Joanne Hardesty spoke first, and now we hear Ibrahim Mubarak, an advocate for those experiencing houselessness. Salam alaikum. I'm Ibrahim Mubarak. Um, I'm co-founder of Dignity Village, uh, Right to Dream Too, and founder of Right to Survive. Um, I go throughout the country talking to house, the houseless community and uh, speaking up and doing for themselves. Uh, I would like to give thank you to Joanne Hardesty. She's one of my mentors. I would like to embarrass a couple of people. Colonel Moses, who I listen to sometimes, and, <laughs> and my infinite wife. <laughs> I got to give her on. <laughs> um, Joanne came to you from uh, looking at things from a, a black perspective. I want to come to you from uh, a houseless perspective, which we can tie together houselessness and racism. Uh, I like to get audience participation because I feel lonely up here. <laughs> I, want, I want you all to get to know me, and I get to know you. So I, 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 this is a, a exercise I use sometimes when I talk about uh, Black Lives Matters or houselessness to the public. So don't feel embarrassed if I if if I say something that may offend you. I don't mean to, but I want to know how many people know about houselessness. Okay, that that's 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 yeah, that's a good. How many people know a houseless person? Okay. Now the good question: How many people would 
trade places with that houseless person. Y'all didn't understand me. <laughs> if you know what they go through, if you know they dying on the street in freezing cold weather, if you know they don't have nowhere to eat, they don't have nowhere to shower, if you know they have nowhere to sleep, if you know all their sentimental values being taken away, why aren't you doing something about it? And you need to search your own inventory because everybody here is, 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 is a spiritual, faith-based person or you wouldn't be here. And I know in every Torah, Quran, or Bible, it says, help the people less than. Don't put yourself above. And Jesus even said, I had no pillow, nobody showed me where to sleep, I have no food, nobody fed me. Are we better than him? So why aren't we doing anything about it? We see what's happening to the houseless people. We see what's happening to the people of color. We see that it's trickling over into the white community and people saying, I'm white and I'm privileged. It's nothing wrong with being white and privileged. It's what you do with your white and privilegedness. Are you going to use it to help humanity the way you believe in, the way you were taught to believe in, or are you going to use it for self-gain and say, oh, that's not my concern? I remember when I was growing up. By the way, I'm from Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> a lot of people ask me where I'm from. I grew up in the in poorest neighborhood in Chicago under Kabitty Green. I didn't have contact with my first white person until I went to college. And there was five of us in that college. And I said, well, this is a future shock. Where's the afro? You know, that's what I'm telling my age. So if you know this happens on your humanitarian spirit that you was raised in, why aren't we not helping our community? People look at me and I say, what do you see when you see me? And I get this silent treatment. <laughs> the three worst things to the American government, I'm black, I'm homeless, and I'm a Muslim. And how far worse can you be in this country than that? But look at the work I'm doing. If I, with these three negativity, can continue to grow and build people up to positivity, what more can you do? Unless you bold, cause three strikes is a turkey, you're not outright. And so I take the positive out of the negative and build people more real, they principle, they spirit, they scruples up. We are humans. Just because we don't have a house just because we don't have an apartment don't mean we're not human. We're still human. I can be your neighbor for 10 years. I lose my house. You won't say nothing to me. I have seen that. I was one of those people. What you, what you read in the papers about me or what you hear about me, they tell you the negative side of me. Of course I was in the game. That was the peer pressure of being, live, growing up in the projects of Chicago. What you expect? I get beat up every day while I join a game to protect myself. Now, how advanced in that game, I won't tell you, but I, but I had to join that game. But what you don't know, I graduated from four colleges. I was an aerospace technician. 
and I utilize my skills and my knowledge to help people. It's nothing wrong with getting your nest egg. And once you read there, don't be greedy. You come down and you help other people. You use your privilege to help other people. It don't say in the Bible or in our Constitution to help only white people, to help only black people, to help only Native American, to help only Hispanic. It say we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. And let's go back into the Bible. I'm going to read you from where you at. The Tower of Babel, where we was all one. And we was building the tower to go to heaven. And God said, hey, let's send down the spirit of confusion and see how they work with that confusion. So he created different languages. We were saying the same thing, but not understanding each other. And the only thing that was missing at that Tower of Babel was what? An interpreter. Because if we had listened to God and prayed to God, what is this person saying? What is this person doing? He would have let us know the same thing you're doing, trying to reach heaven, but going about it a different way. So why do we uh, criticize differences? We need to learn to accept differences and put our negativity behind us and help one another. And right now, this country is in need of help. The people that voted for Donald Trump did what they supposed to do. They voted for the person they want in office. I'm not angry with them because if I voted for Obama, I wanted him to be in office. So what would I want people to be angry at me because I won? By the way, the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy at that. <laughs> you know, you go ask Cleveland Indians, they're not happy with it. But <laughs> well, I'm happy. So, but that don't mean I'm a bad guy. That don't mean they're a bad guy. It means that I choose that my side won, but that don't mean I should stop helping people. We are forgetting our humanitarian spirit. We are forgetting to help people. That stuff is being taken. People are being frozen outside because we are becoming a selfish, individual nation. I say it again. We are becoming a selfish, individual nation. How many, people raise their hands and say they know about houselessness. People raise their hands and say they know about houseless people. But they don't want to trade places because they know of the horror, the torture that they go through in the streets. I don't think it's up to the faith-based community to solve this, but I think the faith-based community should have a voice in promoting to help people because this is what we're taught. No matter what spirituality or belief you believe in, it said help your fellow humans. Unless you cut me and I bleed green, you need to help me. <laughs> you need to help people. Color is just a separation to see how well along you would get with differences. And we're failing that. We failing on helping each other. What about the tall people? What about the short people? There's differences in that. Why aren't we helping? 
So I decided to utilize my spirituality. I decided to utilize my education. I decided to utilize my knowledge on doing just that and helping people. And now I need help because this epidemic of houselessness is spreading throughout this country. Every day in this city, 111 people are moving here to Portland. And where are the 111 people going that's been displaced? Where are the families going? Where are the children going? People are separating families. And you're creating chaos in the foster care. If they can take that family and separate that family and pay somebody to take care of somebody else's children, why can't they pay for that family to stay together in a house? We stop traumatic experience to that child and those parents. If we reach down in our spirituality to help one, one another for social justice, it'll be less alcoholism, it'll be less drugism, it'll be less theft because people will have a safe place they can go on their own. People will feel comfortable. It takes a village. I was one of those persons that grew up in the projects in a poor area, and as we got older, as I got older, my family improved. They moved us out to the suburb in Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, whoever from that area. My father became a mayor of that city, and I went, and that's when I was able to go to colleges. And I would walk past a houseless person and say, hey, man, can you give me a quarter to, so I can buy a coffee? I said, you can get up in the morning and ask me for a quarter. You can get up and look for work. How naive and stupid was I? <laughs> When I found out the real truth, when I started traveling throughout the country seeing homelessness, it's not that easy. Once you fall down on your luck, it's you at the bottom of the totem pole. Once you graduate from college and you can't get a job, you're a year behind and you're on that totem pole. My niece graduated from Harvard University with a Ph.D., and she's waiting tables at Applebee's. What that say about this country? What that say about us? We need to start putting our differences behind us and stand together. I don't care how tall, what color your skin, what your spirituality is. If we don't, the people who you don't want in office are going to be in office. We need to put like-minded people who's for the people. Not for themselves, not for the corporations, not for industrialization, not for uh, mass criminalization or incarceration. Because I guarantee you, somebody in your family is living on the streets, somebody you know whose family is living on the street, and somebody in your family is being criminalized for exercising human rights. Let me tell you a little bit about houselessness. Once you live on the streets, there's no public restrooms. So where are you going to exercise your human rights? And you say, Ibrahim, what you mean about exercise your human rights? If you drink and eat, you got to go to the restroom. How many people have drunk and ate and haven't been able to go to the restroom? 
<laughs> You're not human. <laughs> but if you had to patronize a business, you had to buy something to go use the restroom. That's a human right. That's something God gave us. How many people been sleep deprived? Living in the streets, you can't get the proper rest. And you start doing sporadic things. People think you're on drugs. People think you're mental, mentally challenged. But you just say, all I need is a safe place to sleep. And once you find that safe place to sleep, is it warm? Is it dry? Or will the police or will the security officer or will the business people come sweep you along, take all your possession? In this, what, 17th day of 2017, how many people have died by being frozen on the streets? This, this is reality. A lady and her baby, a man who the police took everything away from him. He had no blanket. He froze. A lady who couldn't pay $330. She was laid on her rent and got kicked out and froze what, in her car. And there was another person walking around. She was so depressed, she, they took all her clothes, she was walking around naked, and they found her froze to death. This is ridiculous, and we are allowing this. We are not doing nothing about it, and we come here and we praise Allah. We praise God, Jesus, and we go back to our home. That's not my problem. It is your problem. People are not the problem. The problem is the problem. And we got to solve that problem by standing up to our leaders who we vote for and pick to help us out. And if they're not going to do it, we impeach them and put somebody in there who's going to help us. Because now, I, I, the, ever since Trump, I, I, I mean, I'm glad Trump got voted because it gave me a lot of time to speak and voice my opinion and people have to listen to me, <laughs> whether they want to or not. <laughs> but ever since he's been elected, I've been speaking to over like panels of 700 people in my audience and they all hire middle class white people because now it's affecting them. Why do we have to wait for something to affect us in order to help? Amen. Why? And, and, and that's what I do. You search your own inventory. You come up with your own conclusion. But I can't sleep at night knowing that it's children running the streets. They're being raised by the streets. It's families hiding in vacant buildings because they don't want to be separated. <clears throat> the police, that people are being criminalized. Now, how do you expect people to get on their feet if you look at their record and they say, criminal trespassing? Do y'all know what criminal trespassing is? Criminal trespassing is when you fall asleep on the sidewalk. The sidewalk is public property. Trespassing is not a crime until you go into a, a private entity without permission. Last I checked, I was the public, so I have a right to be on public property. What crime am I committing when I'm sleeping? What crime? That's a human right. So are, is, are our laws superseding the laws of God? 
Are our laws telling us we don't need God? This country was on spirituality. It was a different, the Native American had a different spirituality. Then the Europeans came in with a different spirituality. The, the African community had different spirituality. But we, might, we, might, we can disagree on Jesus. We can disagree on Prophet Sulaiman Muhammad. But we know it's God. And God set the roadmap for all of us. Help your fellow brothers and sisters. He didn't say help your fellow white brothers. He didn't say help your fellow black brothers. He said brothers and sisters. Thank you. This is Political Perspectives on KBOO. I'm John Schock. You're listening to The Dream Under Siege, a community forum on racism that was held Tuesday, January 17th. It was hosted by five Beaverton area congregations, Murray Hills Christian Church, Spirit of Grace, Christ United Methodist Church, Cedar Hills United Church of Christ, and it was held at Southminster Presbyterian Church. There was a question and answer session after both Joanne Hardesty and Ibrahim Mubarak spoke. There isn't time here to present all of the questions, but here is this one that was asked by Christ United Methodist Church Pastor Brett Strobel. Uh, The next question is, uh, what one thing do you wish every white person would do? I wish that we're lobbying for prayers to be come back in school. I think uh, prayer was the foundation and the backbone of our, uh, raising our children. And when we took prayers out, we lost our children. We lost generations. I, I think, and, and, and that's not just for the white people. That's for everybody. But for a white person, I wish they would stop saying, that's not me. They we're different. So I'm going to disagree with my brother about like bringing prayer back into the school. I appreciate the separation of church and state, and I want to make sure that there's a brick wall between the two. Um, but I think my message would be to not believe the public narrative, right? So as a white person, I would ask you to do what I do when I'm trying to understand something that's not my lived experience, I asked a lot of questions. And so Mm -hmm. I would encourage, rather than believing uh, the headlines that we all see on the evening news, gang shooting, story at 11, right? By a show of hands, when you hear that, what do you see? I know what I've been conditioned to see. I've been conditioned to see a black male between 12 and 24 years old um, involved in some criminal behavior because that's how I've been taught when the media says gang shooting story at 11, right? Um, And so I want people to challenge that narrative. When you listen to the evening news and In the story, the only people that are telling you the story are police officers. I want you to question that, right? So when the police say, we had a gang shooting outside of Jefferson High School, don't accept that as fact, right? Because most of the time, the the shooting was about a mile away from Jefferson High School, but it was the marker that they could use to actually paint the narrative of what took place, right? 
the media is wonderful at actually giving us a story that is not based in fact at all. And in fact, as I have discovered that uh, the police department in my neighborhood have two public affairs officers whose job it is is to go out and scare white homeowners to calling and demanding more policing services. I mean, that's their whole job, right? And they do it at neighborhood night outs, they do it at uh, neighborhood association meetings, and here's the story. The police will come and say, Max is bringing gangs to your neighborhood, and so if you see people that you don't know, call the police. Now think about living in a community where 10,000 people have been displaced because of gentrification. Think about those 10,000 people now living in a community that has been traditionally white, has been traditionally middle class, traditionally homeowners, right? And their children have grown up and gone away and married and had babies and all that good stuff. And so the people left in the neighborhood are retired white homeowners and the police come to you and say, be fearful. What are you gonna do? You're gonna be fearful, right? Because an authority figure came and told you, right? That Max is bringing crime to your neighborhood. But I tell you what, I lived in a neighborhood before gentrification happened. I was a homeowner. And here's what happened when gentrification happened. When gentrification, so new natures went in on the corner of Northeast 15th and Fremont. Yeah. Um, the week that natures went in, the police department, the North Precinct, started getting calls every day at 315. Well, the only thing that was different at 315 was that Nature's was, had opened up just a, like a week or so ago. But what was interesting is the police department started getting these calls. And here's the calls they were getting. There are kids out there casing my house. I think there are gang members looking at my house, right? And so I called the police chief, because I knew the police chief, knew him well. Said, chief, why are you harassing these kids who are doing what they've always done? They get off the bus, they go into the five and dime on the corner of 15th and Fremont, they buy their candy and snacks for the afternoon, then they come outside on the corner and figure out what they're gonna do until they have to be home for dinner, right? Kids have done it ever since I've lived on that block, right, that's what they do. But new people moved in, mm. and all of a sudden, they had watched the evening news, they knew that the gangs were running rampant in this community, and as far as they were concerned, those are what the gang members look like. They were black, they were between 12 and 24 years old, they were out hanging out on the street corner, right? And so in their mind, we're gonna call the police, right? That, that's what they told us to do. You don't know them, call the police. Well, it would have been so much easier had they, when they moved in, gone next door and said, hi, my name is so-and-so, I just moved in. What's your name, right? Here are my kids, you got kids? Let's introduce them, right? So we'll know who the neighborhood kids are? No, instead, they thought it was okay to call the police every time they saw a kid that didn't look like their kid. And so that's what creates mm -hmm. the narrative, right? Because yeah. all of a sudden the police are like, we're getting all these calls for gang members, right? That are hanging out in the neighborhood. But so you have to be more uh, critical in your thinking and ask many more questions. Well. How do you know they're gang members? Because they police love it when I ask them, well, how do you know they're gang members? And they used to tell me, what's the way they dress? Well, tell me more. What if they wear their baseball hat this way? They're part of this gang. If they wear it backwards, they're part of that gang. Because 
I kept trying to say to them, you need a definition that doesn't include race. Hmm. So instead, they decided that hip hop fashion was sufficient to call somebody a gang member. Hmm. And so that's how insidious it is, right? And if you don't challenge the narrative, then you're left at home thinking, oh, well, that's what a gang member looks like. Oh, so that, those kids are, those are bad kids, right? These are kids that are in their own neighborhood, right? But because the adults haven't taken the time to introduce themselves, they are perceived as community problems. Thank you. You've been listening to Political Perspectives on KBOO. We just heard The Dream Under Siege, a community forum on racism, presented by Joanne Hardesty and Ibrahim Mubarak. It was held Tuesday, January 17th, and hosted by five Beaverton area congregations, Murray Hills Christian Church, Spirit of Grace, Christ United Methodist Church, Cedar Hills United Church of Christ, and it was held at Southminster Presbyterian Church. I'm John Schock. Be well. Be well.